the Circle of Competence podcast. Ryan Reeves is my guest today. He's the founder of Investing City, an online financial media website whose mission is to save people time and boost their returns in the stock market through his research as a service platform and online education where he seeks to teach people the fundamentals of long-term investing. He's best known for his business model breakdowns and prolific Twitter feed on business analysis, strategy, and long-term investing. Ryan, welcome to the Circle of Competence podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Benton. I appreciate the introduction. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, let's let's get into your background, how you founded IC, and your you know a little bit more about the mission and what you're after with it. Yeah, sure. So. I've just kind of been a nerd about investing for a really long time. Like I bought my first stock at 12 years old. I actually had a fifth grade teacher who brought in her husband and taught us about the stock market and had a little game. Like I know people usually do that like the senior year of high school, but for some reason I did it in the fifth grade and for some reason I found it really interesting. And then just kind of stumbling around the internet, found Peter Lynch and you know one up on Wall Street and just thought it was like the coolest idea that you could make money by just being observant in the world around you and then kind of found Warren Buffett. Um, so just was like a total nerd about the stock market. I knew I wanted to do something with investing just because there's, it's really like a never ending journey to learning about business, learning different models, just kind of figuring out how the world works. Um, and I had two experiences in college where I was able to kind of refine those skills. And then I kind of just made a leap after graduating college and started investing city to really kind of focus on concentration and focus on um, picking the best companies that I thought could provide members great returns. And so it's been just over two years and just been really blessed to being to kind of have the privilege to wake up and research businesses. So investing city, when you, when you, when you first came up with this idea, you know, there, there are lots of RIAs, there are lots of online blogs, there are lots of publishing companies that put out ideas on stocks. Talk about going into like a competitive <clears throat> field like that and how you thought about shaping the, the brand and your idea um, and the company, you know, in the midst of like a competitive field, like financial blogging. And education. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really good question, and I mean, it honestly is competitive. I think one differentiator for us is we're focused a lot on quality um, instead of just pumping out reports. I think it's a lot of. I mean, even some members have said, you know, you should recommend certain amount of stacks per month, um, but I, I think that it's like the goal isn't to always be, I mean, the goal isn't like entertainment. It's really, you know, trying to build a portfolio that, you know, you can actually create great alpha for. Um, and then the other thing is kind of different than a RIA. We don't take, a, it's kind of just a flat fee. So you kind of have the best of both worlds from just focusing on quality, but your fee doesn't just go up with your return. So, I mean, hopefully members are getting great ROI on their uh, investment memberships and hopefully it can continue to do that. Are you, how, how does it work with the stocks that you typically recommend? Are you holding these or 
are they stocks that you recommend, but perhaps maybe you're not for, for one reason or another, maybe they're more of a dividend stock and you are looking at more of some of the gro- growthier companies? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so there's a model portfolio where people can, members can see exactly the allocations um, and exactly when we bought into those and just full transparency. And then every week we provide updates and it's usually in the form of some update on the portfolio. So some things we've done in the past, we looked at the capital intensity of each business or look at a deep dive on the CEOs and the company culture. So it's kind of all research that is actively trying to understand what that model portfolio is and why we're thinking about it in that way. Um, And then we will do like an initiation report uh, where we'll do like a big write-up if we're buying a new position or something like that. But the goal is to, I mean, the other thing is we're always looking at new stuff and we also have a forum where we'll just post, hey, we've been looking at this, we might might not buy it, but just want to let you know that we've kind of been looking at this. So it's it's really, we're always looking at stuff, but for the most part, it's really built around that um, model portfolio. Gotcha. So if I were to sort of regurgitate this, the the business model is that you are running a portfolio that your members subscribe to. So this is, you know, the IC portfolio that Ryan Reeves is running and you are actively researching and updating your thoughts on the current portfolio. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Got it. I kind of want to back up a a little bit and let's uh, maybe go through or unpack that a little bit. So talk about some of the research that you've done on the on the CEOs or executives. Like, what does that look like? Maybe some trends that you've uncovered, some things that are interesting. Totally. So I think right now in the portfolio, there's about 10 companies. So we try to stay pretty concentrated. Um, And I want to say that eight out of those 10 are founder led companies. And actually the two that aren't founder led, the founder is like now the chairman. He's kind of just stepped back. So pretty much all of them have the founder kind of in the business still. Um, and I think it's, it's just important because like founders, I mean, there can be very well-groomed CEOs that come in and kind of are like official management, but founders like live and breathe the business. Like in the shower, they're thinking about this company. Like just uh, like so much of their life is wrapped up in this company. And I think it's amazing that we can kind of sit back and hitch a ride with these people that are so actively involved in these businesses. Um, So the research is kind of just like, watching a ton of videos on them, listen to every podcast that they've ever done. Um, if they have a book, read the book, um, just kind of understanding. Cause I think really like qualitatively, all of these things really allow you to hold on to the business. Like if it might've missed a quarter, it might've come like the bottom line, they missed by a penny and all of a sudden the stock sells off. You remember like, wait, this person is a genius and they've like created this category and, I remember what they said in the book. Um, it just kind of gives you an ability to zoom out rather than being so focused in the short term. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's <clears throat> a lot to unpack there. What do you typically find for the founder-led companies? That, how much do they typically hold percentage-wise? Yeah, it's a good question. So percentage-wise is interesting. Um, it, it's kind of all of the board. Depends on like how early they took venture capital, 
Um, like some companies the founder will own, like there's this one company, which honestly, if it gets too big, then it's a little bit sketchy because like this founder has full control, which I'm honestly fine with. Um, but I've had some companies that like the founder owns 60% of the business, um, which is amazing. And in that case, actually he founded three companies previously. So he's already independently wealthy. And so he used his own money to found this other company. Therefore he could own that much share. And then other companies, uh, it'll be like 5%. Um, I think a great place is like in between 10 and 20%. But if, but if it's a huge company and he owns like 2%, but that is like 500 million, it's like, okay, he probably cares about that. Like that's, that's fine. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> One of the ways that I, I've heard, and I can't remember where I heard this, a good way to gauge founder connection to the company is what percentage of the, their net worth is actually in the stock that they own. Let's go back to an earlier point that you made about founder-led companies and it being good or, you know, could be good or bad. Talk about some instances that perhaps it's not so good. So the 60%, for example, this guy has full control and maybe he stacks his board with people that are just yes men and they'll agree with everything he says. And he decides to go off in this one direction and nobody can kind of say, ah, I don't know if you should do that. Um, so that could be like an example where the CEO has so much power that he actually becomes blind to his decision-making process. So I could, I'd say like that's probably the main example. There's a great book by a guy named, I believe his name's Jeff Graham, Dear Chairman. Have you ever read that book? No, but I've heard of it. <clears throat> it, it talks about a lot of corporate governance issues, kind of similar to this, and, and some of the best letters of, of history to, to some of these some of these boards. In general, I agree with you. I think founder-led companies are, are good because they allow you to participate in, in a business that someone is obviously very incentivized to run well. Talk about some of the other aspects that you look for in the businesses that you are putting into the model, or well, that you're buying in the model portfolio besides just founder-led companies? Sure. So I think one interesting aspect is like this um, duality between market and competition. So a lot of times you'll see a market that is sort of stagnant, but this company has like a monopoly on the market. Um, we probably would rather invest in a market that has big tailwinds, but there might be more, you know, like quote unquote competition. Um, because like the goal is to find a leader in a space where there's big tailwinds. And so there's naturally going to be a lot of customers that either because this has like a new paradigm and it's better cost savings or more efficient. Um, and the leaders tend to kind of get bigger and bigger. Well, that's not always true. That's kind of like a pattern, um, within a lot of internet enabled, um, you know, sort of tech companies. And I'd say like definitely a leadership position because leaders I'd say disproportionately get either better hires, um, easier deals with partners, uh, customers know about the company much more easily. Um, so rather than like focusing, um, so much on like a moat, which I think there, you can always take two sides of every argument, but I think like a market that is growing and a company that's a leader rather than having like no competition um, is pretty interesting. 
So there are a couple of concepts that sort of relate to your business model breakdowns. Maybe talk about in the model portfolio, are there trends that you've noticed in businesses that you like to buy in terms of their business model and sort of how they, what their competitive advantage is, right? Like, is it cost? Is it speed? Is it high quality? Is it some sort of combination? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think this idea of like the rate of innovation is really interesting. So I think a lot of investors and I mean, me included, I think the, this concept of moat is obviously really interesting because just a law of economics is that um, other companies are going to come in and cut down your profit margin if there's any space to do that. And so you want to create these big moats and barriers to entry. But there, there's like a, another side to that because if you have a huge barrier to entry, it's very likely that it's a very capital intensive business and therefore maybe your profit is already eroded. So I think like an interesting place to think of, especially in today's day and age, is things are moving so fast that an interesting thing to look at is sort of rate of innovation, like how fast can this company create new products, deliver more value? Like I think at the end of the day, a huge thing that we're looking for is like a big surplus, um, a big consumer surplus. Like how much can these companies directly deliver value to their customers? Um, And as long as they're doing that, I think the company will usually do pretty well. Um, In terms of like specific business models, um, I think an interesting one is software just because the way that the, the flow of money works where they get money up front and then they can kind of provide the service and then there's switching costs and you can kind of layer on more products and kind of upsell. And especially if you have a solid lock-in rather than like a predatory lock-in, like a, a good ecosystem of products that could be really interesting of lowering churn. And then another thing I think is like a business model where your product is a very small piece of your customer's cost structure. Um, so like a, an interesting example is Adobe, where a lot of designers, like they will wake up, use Adobe, and the last thing that they'll close on their laptop of a day of work is Adobe. Um, and people might say it's expensive, but if you think you're like of an ad agency, Adobe is a cost of the total structure is very small, yet it's a huge consumer surplus. Um, so I think like, not necessarily that that's a business model thing, but like thinking of that philosophically is really interesting to sort of find businesses that fit that criteria. Buffett once said about Apple, you know, we pay a thousand bucks or $750 for our iPhones, but how much value do they actually provide? I mean, people run their entire lives off of an electrical box and, you know, arguably they could charge way more than that. Now, they're certainly not a software company. They've got components of it, but that's a good point too about about the software businesses that are arguably better because they have higher gross margins and, you know, again, you can upsell. And one thing that you reminded me of is is something that Jeff, Jeff Bezos really hits on a lot, which is, you know, pleasing the customer. Is Amazon a model portfolio company? <laughs> so I, I love Amazon, big fan of Amazon. It's a little bit big for the, the companies that we're looking at. I mean, just from a numbers perspective, if it's like a 1.5, trillion dollar company i think now um so for it to double it has to add 1.5 trillion dollars of value versus if like the sweet spot for us is like two to ten billion i think that's really great um 
I mean, it's just the, the, the numbers. Like for Amazon, eventually, if it becomes a $3 trillion company, it's got to just do so much in free cash flow, like eventually that it, it just becomes like a huge percentage of GDP and stuff. Um, which I, I honestly think like Amazon could do that, um, but prefer to focus on companies where you can see like the market cap really growing. There, I feel like almost the risk for Amazon at this point, the biggest risk is like regulatory risk, just given the, the size and, and how they are forced to sort of like squeeze suppliers and people, you know, just, just to get to those free cash flow numbers that justify valuation. I, I, what do you think? Uh, yeah, honestly, it's, it's been pretty interesting. So for the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, it's sort of been um, Amazon's providing so much consumer surplus that regulators can't really say that they're like screwing customers because they're, they're actually like providing such a great service, lowering prices. And that's part of like their business model. Um, the one thing that kind of worries me is they when you sign on Amazon these days, you'll see a lot of like the sponsored ads. So they're kind of bumping up suppliers to like basically paying Amazon to get better um, search results. And I think that's kind of like against Amazon's ethos. And I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, advertising is actually like contributing a decent amount to their bottom line these days. So maybe that's kind of why they're doing it. But um, I think they gotta be careful but at the end of the day, I think they are providing so much value that it would be like Amazon these days doesn't really get brought up as much as like a Facebook or something for regulatory. And I think it's because they're actually like one of their goals is just continually lower costs. That's a good point. Okay, so outside of software, are there other actual physical goods and service businesses or industries that that you're interested in? Because I hear software tossed around uh, quite a bit, you know, in more of the, the GARPY circles, the growth at a reasonable price. These companies, you know, obviously have potentially huge growth stories in front of them. And some of their multiples show that. But talk about maybe some of the other indi- some other industries that, that you're interested in. So a really interesting example of this is Intuitive Surgical. They have their Da Vinci robots where it's kind of tech enabled to like help a surgeon really um, do a surgery very minimally invasive. And then they layer on this with the consumables where it's like new arms for the Da Vinci robot and little things like that. And the consumables actually make up more of the revenue than the actual robots these days. And it's super high margin. Another example of that is Illumina, which is genetic sequencing. So they sell these big sequencers and then the consumables are actually these diagnostic test kits um, in order to sell to uh, pharmaceutical labs or research labs. Um, And there's just a bunch of other examples where it's a medical device, but a lot of the profit is actually in the consumables because it's recurring revenue and it's also high margin. Um, So like that's that's one example that I I think is pretty interesting. So it sounds like more of a razor and razor blade model. Yeah, exactly. The new Gillette's of the world. Yeah, totally. It's a good way to put it. Well, let's let's transition to the business model breakdowns. Maybe give a little bit of background there and um, and we'll get into that. Yeah, sure. So it kind of started on Twitter. I just started reading 10Ks and putting out thoughts 
And then one sort of got some traction on Costco, which I think it'd be interesting to talk about that one. But it basically just started putting these things out on Twitter and people found them sort of interesting. And so I created a small newsletter just breaking down two businesses every month. And the goal, the little catchphrase is like reading a 10K, but infinitely better. And the whole goal is to kind of like synthesize an annual report and figure out exactly how the company makes money and then just some thoughts on what I think the business is going to do in the future. I'd love to break down Costco and Spotify with you. I, I, I want to hear more about those businesses. I've, I've personally read both of those and I'll link to those in the show notes, but um, let's break down Costco. Sure. So <laughs> it's, it's interesting because if you look at, you pull up the annual report and you look at their net income, it's roughly like $4 billion. And if you look at how much they make off of the $60 annual membership fee, it's also about $4 billion. So it really lines up nicely. Um, so you can essentially say that Costco makes all of their profit from getting 50 million people to pay $60 a month. And then the $130 billion in merchandise is essentially like break even after keeping the lights on, after paying your checkout people, all of that. Um, which is like, it's just a crazy thought because if you, obviously it was, it didn't work out like, you know, Jim Senegal, the guy who started Costco, like he probably didn't think, okay, what's a way to create this amount of profit? Like he just ran his business and then it, it sort of worked out this way. But it's pretty interesting if you sort of reverse engineer it and think, you know, like what would be the best way, uh, maybe not the best, but what would be like one way to create $4 billion of profit? And you just think like, what if we created the best grocery store ever and just plowed all of our excess profits back in the business and then just charge people like a very low, turns out to be like $5 a month for access to this. And it'd be like, wow, that's, that's like a really random way to run a business. Um, but it's just like, it's pretty crazy to think that they do, you know, $130 billion in revenue, but it's really only that $4 billion that is, is actually per profit. Do you think that Amazon in some sense follows that business model in the sense that they're, that the retail piece is attracting people to the platform, the convenience, and then to upsell them on the, on the prime and, and maybe some of the other services? Totally. I think that was a big piece of, of the thinking. Um, I think one other aspect that's a little bit different with Amazon is that they really push prime because it gives them the money up front that they can then spread out on logistics costs because Amazon really has that other huge variable to worry about. Um, but I think it's, it's pretty similar. Let's go to Spotify. How does Spotify make its money? Sure. So it makes its money. So 10% of the money is just from the ad supported um, subscribers. And then actually 90% is from the paying monthly users. But what's interesting about Spotify is if you look at its gross margin, it's only about 24%. Um, I mean, Amazon, I think their gross margins these days are like 40%. So you can just see that it, it's really squeezed on a gross profitability basis. And that's because of these big three music labels. Um, so the, the thing about these music labels is they've really got like 80 to 90% of the market. Um, so I think it's Sony, Warner Bros, and Universal. And they really just have these huge backlogs because they have all these relationships with artists over the years. 
and then they basically license that music to Spotify. Um, but what's becoming interesting is Spotify now, probably next quarter, they're going to surpass 300 million monthly active users. And so it becomes sort of this leverage game where Spotify now has a lot of the demand that they can leverage against the labels, but it, it started out completely the other way around. Um, but yeah, Spotify is a, it's, it's really interesting balance between leverage of the suppliers and how they've kind of tiptoed that balance. Yeah, let's let's kind of dig into that a little bit because they started out aggregating the demand by almost I guess they were a loss leader for a long time, really not making a ton of money, but gathering subs. And now they're at the point where they're starting to tip the scales a little bit. Maybe maybe talk about that a little bit and where you see things going from here. Yeah, I mean, I think you you've kind of nailed it. I think an interesting point is how it kind of came to be. And I think this is obviously oversimplistic, um, but in, this company started, it was, I think it was like 2005. And then it really started selling its subscriptions in 2008. And it was a European company. So Daniel Ek is Swedish, uh, who's a CEO. And he went to the European labels who really didn't have as much clout as the um, labels who control a lot of US-based music. And because it was 2008, the labels were struggling themselves and your, Europe didn't have the same sort of triopoly. Um, he was able to get a lot of the backlogs for Europe and then gained about a million subscribers in a few years and then took that you know small, I guess relatively speaking, small uh, user base and kind of leveraged that and started opening like Canada and then eventually came to the US. Um, and so it was sort of this small process of trying to use your user base and kind of leverage that against the people who really had the valuable asset. But another piece of that that's interesting is they've really started to move into podcasts because there isn't the same tight grip on podcasts. They just bought out Joe Rogan and they had a few other podcast acquisitions like Gimlet and Anchor. So Anchor is actually like a platform where you can create a podcast and publish it. So I think it's pretty interesting how they're sort of becoming a company that is really owning the content themselves rather than licensing it. And so that's kind of an interesting way that they're kind of navigating this. To think about it, I guess, from a, from a macro review, it sounds like maybe then that they, they have the subs, but now there's this new nascent market in podcasting that effectively they're trying to be, to your earlier point, a leader in. Is that kind of how you think about it? Yeah, exactly. I think that a lot of people are viewing Spotify as kind of like the Netflix of audio because they're trying to create their content and actually own that IP. But I think maybe a more apt description will be like a Hulu of audio because I think ultimately they, I mean, they have the advertising supported listeners, but they make 90% off the subscription. And like the thing about podcasting right now is that ad, ad load is very low relative to like the amount of time that people actually spend listening to podcasts. And for them, it seems like a natural progression is to really focus on the advertising piece of this business where they can become sort of like a Facebook of podcast advertising where um, if you're a brand, you can kind of 
because right now a lot of podcasts, the actual host will read the ad and it just seems like there could be a much better experience, like similar to the radio where the brand will actually create the ad and then you can sort of slot it in. Um, and that seems sort of like a natural progression. Um, but the other thing is like, I wonder if people are getting used to the fact that there's actually not a lot of ads in podcasts. Um, and maybe like if, if Spotify really sparks this change where a lot of, uh, a lot of podcasts are putting a bunch of ads will people then actually go to like a subscription model on podcasts. So that's, I'm not sure, but, um, I think that Spotify has a, a few different ways that it can sort of navigate the future. Yeah, that's interesting. I really hope they don't go to a subscription base because I love my free Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> totally. That's what I'm thinking. It's, it's sort of hard to go from free to subscription. Like Netflix never had the problem. It, it always was the, well, not always, I guess I had the DVD sort of thing, but there was never this free model and then sort of going to a paid. It's kind of interesting how it could functionally be the same thing, but just because people are used to it, it's a much different thing, like harder pill to swallow. That's, that's just sort of like a, a thought I had. Yeah. Yeah. That it definitely would be a, a much harder pill to swallow. I actually use anchor for, for this podcast. I switched from a different service and, and really like it. And I actually switched when I was doing some research on your podcast, which I believe you use anchor as well. Yeah. It's funny. Actually, I just switched probably like a couple months ago and just started using anchor and I'm happy with it. Super easy to use. And uh, yeah, it's great. Let's talk a little bit about that before we before we wrap up with our final questions. Tell us about the podcast, some of the guests you've had on, and your you know your goal and your vision there. Sure. So the podcast is super fun. Just kind of interviewing business people, entrepreneurs, fund managers. Actually, the the first person I had on was the CEO of Walmart. So it was it was just like a, a privilege to be able to do that. That's awesome. I think we I think we covered a lot of what what we wanted to talk about. Let's let's go ahead and go to the final questions. So, you started Investing City a couple of years ago, th- two two years ago. What advice would you give yourself then, based on what you've experienced, what you've learned? What advice would you give yourself starting IC then? So it's not really a, a novel concept, but there's this idea of like the lean startup method where you basically. Um, sort of like the jargony word is minimum viable product. And the whole thing is basically to get like as much feedback as you can from customers and like what actually would help them and what actually would they need. And then sort of create like the the easiest way for them to get the easiest way to solve that problem. So I remember the, for the first three months of investing city, I like sat down and wrote out like this 40 page, it was probably even longer, like 50 page manifesto, all I thought about investing and like made the website all perfect, which I could have just like opened a medium account and started a little blog and, and put it out on Twitter. Um, it would have saved me probably three months and probably would have functionally done the same thing. Um, so really just focusing on exactly what customers want and then trying to iterate and, and find out what's like the lowest friction way to solve that problem. And then I can make it fancy later once I get some good feedback. So I'm familiar with the, the lean startup method, but maybe go a little bit into who came up with that. Yeah, Eric Rise basically 
creating that minimum viable product and then constantly getting customer feedback and iterating over time. And I think it's, it's a really great, it's like the opposite of the field of dreams idea where you build it and everybody else will come like, just make sure that you're solving a problem and then getting that feedback so that you don't waste a bunch of your time. What's one thing you wish you would have done differently? Um, so when first starting investing city, we had like three different membership tiers to sort of break it up and get like a entry level into the, like a wide in the funnel, have like a lower price point, but it ended up kind of being confusing and people were like, wait, I w- explain to me how it's differentiated and all this. Um, so I think like at the very beginning, a focus on clarity is like super important. Um, and then you can sort of create complexity along the way. But if it's complex in the beginning, then it just becomes way too complex eventually. Um, so I think focus in the beginning is super underrated. Yeah, that's great. So eliminate the paradox of choice. Totally, because like A, it's it's a new business and people are having to figure out what it is anyway. And then they have to figure out the choice of the product. It just becomes a lot. And so if you see like modern day companies that have tons of choices, like if you look at the AWS website, there's like so much going on, but that started out with, you know, a very simple thing. And then they build on that and build on that and build on that. So it, it's sort of misleading to see these companies that have so much and you want to replicate that, but it, you, you kind of missed that they started out, you know, small to begin with. That's good. That's good. Who's one person you'd like to meet and what would you talk to them about? Who's alive today? One person that I've followed for a super long time is Stanley Dreckenmiller. Um, And he thinks about the markets, not like very differently, but he definitely thinks a lot about like liquidity in the markets and, and things that I don't think about a lot, but he, he just has such a big knowledge base of like currencies and commodities and bonds and like things that I really don't know much about that I feel like he would just be such a great source of learning. And I really look up to him. I mean, he's done uh, like even charitably, he's done a lot of stuff that he doesn't really brag about a lot. And his track record is definitely second to none. Yeah. And he, and to your point, he's definitely, I guess, more in the um, macro value camp, I guess is a good way to describe him. How would you describe him? I think it's interesting because he is like, it's hard to even put him in a box because he knows so much that it he becomes like this weapon. When bonds aren't working, he's not afraid to go like long growth stocks. And when things are getting too expensive, he's not like, he just knows so much. Um, and I think the thing that I like most about him is that he is willing to change his mind so often people get locked into like, I'm this certain thing. And if he sees the conditions changing, he's like so okay with just completely doing a 180. And I think that is um, a really underrated piece of being a good investor as well. I feel like there's a good balance between changing your mind too much, but then knowing or versus knowing when to change it. And he's obviously been around for a very long time. And I mean, I remember seeing like an interview with him, you know, early 2019 and it was like, yeah, I'm, you know, 100% wide open, bullish, you know, 100% equities, like we are running hot. And then, you know, like six months later it was, well, you know, I, you know, I'm hedging my bets here, you know, and so it's just very interesting. And he's starting to give a few more interviews now. 
uh, on Bloomberg and, and with some of the other financial commentators. So I'm with you. He's a, he's a sharp guy. All right, so you can't invest in public equities anymore. Where are you going to invest and why? Yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated in with venture capital. I'm personally just I really find technology and early stage companies fascinating. So I I mean I would I would love to sort of find companies a, a little bit earlier um, because you know by the time they get to the public markets, you know they've gone through a bunch of funding rounds and people have already analyze these companies to death and then they're released out into the public. And nowadays valuations are even so big when, when companies go public, that it'd be amazing to find these companies a little bit earlier, get to like know the founders and sort of like just help them would be uh, super rewarding, especially you see like the early grind of the companies, um, which is not to romanticize that it's super difficult, but uh, I think that'd be awesome. What's what's your biggest challenge with investing city right now? I mean, honestly, just to grow it, <laughs> just to get the name out there and and just show people. The thing about investment business is like a lot of these newsletters, you'll sort of like I I really hate the idea of of scammy marketing. Even though like you know buy these stocks that will take off and. Um, I think that that sort of FOMO, you know, will really sell, but we're really trying to just let our research do the talking and um, let the results follow over time. And so, you know, that just takes a long time to get brand awareness and build relationships. How can someone listening to this podcast add value to your business? Yeah, I mean, thanks for asking that. I think just exploring the Investing City website. So if you just Googled Investing City, you'd find it and just exploring and, and understanding if it was, it would be a correct fit for you or checking out the business breakdowns. It's all on the website. Um, we have a ton of free educational stuff, videos, podcasts, blogs, you name it. And yeah, hopefully it would be valuable to you. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the circle of competence podcast today. We'll have to have you on again soon, man. Best of luck to you and let's keep in touch. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ben. It was a blast. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.